Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. So hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Scattered. Today is a special episode, partly because there's just two of us, um, despite us all now being in the same country, we've uh, failed to find a time where we can all meet. <laughs> so yeah, so you'll be hearing my voice and Jill's today. Sorry, team. There's no um, there's no Hermione. There's no fun from Mary. It's just me and Juliet. <laughs> so today we're going to be um, looking at Nehemiah chapter 13. So up until now, we've been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah all, all together as one book um, because they were originally written as one book. Um, and up until now, we've seen how the people have come from a place of exile back to Jerusalem. And here they've started to rebuild the temple, the walls, and the people of God are being called to reform their lives and worship God. Yeah, so Jill, would you be able to summarize chapter 13 for us this week? I found this chapter so depressing. Um. So I guess it's probably worth saying a little bit about the chapters that we've missed. So we um at the la- the last chapter we looked at was a real high point, wasn't it, where everybody was gathered, listening to God's word, really excited to be back together as God's people. And then it seems like the crucial thing is that Nehemiah then goes away and their leader goes back to um Susa, I think, to back to Persia to his day job. And um, in that time, and then in this chapter, he returns and he's really disappointed because there's just a number of things that the people have promised that they will do that they've stopped doing. And so quite quickly and depressingly for me, as I was reading it, the rot has set in. And so in this chapter, there's a catalogue of things that they've promised to do that they're not doing. So one of those would be they're marrying again, people that they shouldn't be marrying, Um the temple is not being used in the way that they promised it would be. They're not bringing their tithes and offerings to the um, temple to enable people to work in the temple. They're not um, keeping the Sabbath special. And then because of the mixed marriages, there's just a number of people who don't even, their children don't even speak the, um, the right language to be able to read the law. So Nehemiah comes back and has I'd say quite strong reactions to these things. Um, And the book ends on a bit of a downer, really. Yeah, it's an interesting way to end a book, isn't it? Yeah, something I read, which I found really helpful, was saying that if this was going to be like a blockbuster, best-selling movie, then you'd end it at the end of chapter 12, where it sort of says, and they offered great sacrifices, they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Women and children rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. Almost that's where you want it to end, don't you? But then there's this chapter after that, which is just, again, I guess realistic. Like the Bible's realistic, isn't it? About the state of our hearts and the state of God's people's hearts. Hmm. Yeah, so this book starts with the people gathering together uh, to hear from the book of 
Moses, something happens. <laughs> well, how do they respond, yeah, to the word being read to them? Yeah, so the thing that is striking in these first few verses, isn't it, is that they hear that they're not supposed to have Ammonites or Moabites um, in the assembly of God. So they hear that call that God gave to Israel to be separate from the people around. And um, yeah, so it says, as soon as they heard this law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. So I guess they went around throwing out people from other nations. But something I read was really interesting on this because it said often at times like this, where there's heightened spiritual fever, people um, over-interpret God's law or add more to it than actually is there. And so whilst there are those prohibitions in the law, there's also examples, aren't there, through the Old Testament of people like Ruth, the Moabites, who was converted and became part of God's people. And so it feels like they were potentially a bit heavy-handed here, throwing out anybody that was from another nation because God cares about people's hearts, doesn't he? And actually it is possible for people from other nations to become part of God's people and submit themselves to his law. Yeah, I think there's a sense in one of the commentaries I read, it was a sense of which the Moabites and Ammonites, they were still holding on to their previous like their gods and they weren't truly worshipping uh Yahweh and they weren't truly um yeah they hadn't left properly their past to, to follow him and so I think like you said Ruth and probably um in this situation there might have been others who are similar to Ruth who had properly integrated into the people of God but those who were still holding on to uh, things not of God um, were asked to be separated yeah yeah I guess it's important isn't it to see the heart of uh, behind this part of God's law that it's not that God's racist but that he really desires his people to worship him in spirit and in truth and in with their hearts and so people that are half-hearted or not really interested in worshipping God, pollute, yeah, God's people, don't they, and pollute the worship of Yahweh. Mm. Yeah, it's a reminder of his holiness. And I think it's a challenge to us as well, because it's so easy, like, for the Israelites, we just see them over and over again, coming back to the, a half-heartedness or a worship of other um, things, other gods. Yeah, it's challenging, isn't it, to think what is there that we're making compromises with in our lives that it does affect our devotion and our wholehearted worship of Jesus. And yeah, there's definitely things in that our culture thinks are fine, aren't there, that we can just make friends with and that just distract us from worship. So then we get taken by um, Nehemiah to a bit about Ellie. Eliashib and Tobiah what was what was going on in this section it's remarkable isn't it that Tobiah the the baddie from the pantomime chapters is now living in the temple because the priest has cleared out some rooms and moved Tobiah in to the right in the center of 
Jerusalem into the God's temple. And Nehemiah isn't, he doesn't take this lying down, does he? He literally goes in there, throws his furniture out onto the street and is furious that not just that such an enemy of God's work has managed to I was listening to something on the radio this morning about undercover policing in the UK and there's been a big report written about what a disgrace it is often but this it's just so blatant that he's managed to infiltrate to the level of moving into the temple and it's like Nehemiah comes back and he's like sorry he's he's where um yeah it's shocking isn't it yes <laughs> and Nehemiah responds, you know, in this way that it, it grieves him and he throws out all his all his things. And it's a real similarity. You know, we can uh, think of when Jesus cleared the temple as such a similar, um, yeah, just parallels with this passage that he really cares for the house of God and yeah, rather than being a house for someone who opposes the work of God, he wants it to be a house that stores things for worship. And yeah, so he really wants, he's he's got such a heart and a love for God's temple that he, he doesn't hold back from doing something quite shocking. Yeah, it's really stark, isn't it? Verse eight. And I was angry and I threw all the household furniture out of the chamber. But yeah, I, yeah, you're right. It's a really good parallel, isn't it? With Jesus and the anger that he felt when God's temple was violated. But I think British, probably not you, Juliet, but British people just struggle with that a little bit, isn't it? Because we, we, our natural tendency is to think that anger is a bad thing. Um, Whereas I guess we see here, it's a good thing, isn't it, to have such a passion for the worship of God's people and that that's able to happen. One really helpful thing I heard in a sermon was there's two things going on here. This room was supposed to be full of offerings that the people had brought. And so the fact that that wasn't the case and it wasn't full of the people's offerings, which would enable the priests and the Levites to be able to minister um, means that it then the wrong things were put there because it wasn't full of the right things. And I just thought that's really helpful, isn't it? Often if we don't follow God's commandments and God's laws, then there's space for bad things to replace what God has ordained. And so if it was full of the good things that God had commanded them to put in that room, there wouldn't have been space for this enemy because they thought it was, they knew better. They didn't need to keep God's law. Then the enemy moves right into the center of Israel. Mm. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. What you said about um, sometimes confronting things is the loving thing to do. And yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge, <laughs> I think, for us to love people within our family, a church family, and, yeah, when we have to clear out the temple, per se, yeah. But I think we've got to be good, haven't we, at confronting our own sin as well before, you know, I think 
only when we're good at doing that in our own lives and facing up to the places that we are prepared to think we know better than God's law, are we then free to do that with other people and in other situations. But I just think for me, so often it's so easy to make friends with my own sin. Mm. So then, of course, it feels hypocritical, doesn't it, to challenge other where you see that in other people hmm. yeah the challenge is to confront the sin in our own lives isn't it and call that out for what it is rather than make friends with it hmm. and also like it gives us opportunity to be open with our friends and say to them you know please if you notice something in my life that is you th- you can see <laughs> you know sometimes you're blinded to your own sin and if we're honest with our friends and say, like, listen, can you tell me if I'm doing uh, something that you can see is obviously something I shouldn't be doing, um, tell me. Um, I feel like that kind of honesty and openness creates a beautiful relationship. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's where we grow, isn't it? Because we are blind, aren't we, so often to our own compromise and, yeah, mistakes. Mm. So then we... Move on to the sin that I, most of the, we've been looking at the sin of different people, but now we see something that it seems like the the whole of the Jewish community has stopped doing, that they haven't been giving what they should to the Levites. And because of that, the Levites are having to go back to their own fields to work and Nehemiah speaks quite strongly against this um, and even says, why is the house of God forsaken? He's good, isn't he? At I just think we see this again and again throughout the whole book. He's prayerful, but he's also practical. And so I think he calls this out and is really, yeah, his heart's really saddened by the neglect of God's house and what's necessary for God's house to be able to function Um for the people's worship but then he's practical in that he then appoints treasurers and people to actually make sure that this happens um reliable men that can then distribute what the levites and the priests need to be able to survive um yeah so i just thought that was another really good example of he's prayerful remember me oh my god but also he's practical in putting the right people in place to make sure this can change I guess the other thing I was thinking about with this is it it's hard it's a little bit hard to relate to isn't it but the the temple what it wasn't just that he cared about a building but that that's the place where God's people meet with God that's the place where they worship in a slightly different way to today and so actually he really cares doesn't he that that is able to happen to maintain that relationship and that covenant between God and his people and so his heart's not, he just doesn't like to keep all the rules and keep the temple shining. It's because if these things aren't in place and there aren't these servants um, making the temple run, that worship can't happen. So then he moves on to talking about the Sabbath and he sees the people doing things that they shouldn't do in the Sabbath. And this disobedience um is shocking to Nehemiah and again contends with them and he he tells them and says 
what is what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the sabbath day and in fact he said your fathers also did this and this led to disaster on them in the city and so he's like why why are you profaning the sabbath he's so you can see his struggle with them and um yeah he's longing for them to obey and and that little bit about your fathers did this i i read that as almost like that's why we were in exile you know that's one of the reasons we were sent into exile because we just forsook god's laws and didn't keep the sabbath and now god's brought us back and we've rebuilt why are we going back to those bad habits yeah, because you might think, like, the list of the things that he says, like, they're not wrong things, but actually God has given them the Sabbath so that they can worship him and honour him. And so it was a clear prioritization of the people to um, make money and spend money um, rather than spend that time to glorify and worship God yeah and it it got me I was thinking quite a lot about Sabbath for us and I know it's not the same as it was then but it it is an opportunity isn't it to prioritize spiritual things over physical things over work over it feels like it was profit here you know they were looking to make money and to trade but um I just think Part of the thing in the Old Testament, wasn't it, was that the Sabbath was a day to be different from the rest of the week, to remember all God's goodness to you over that week and to rest the way he rested. And I just think it's the same today, isn't it? It gives us such an opportunity to set apart a day for different priorities and to say on this day, worship is going to be the rhythm of my day more than it can be the rest of the week. And I'm going to put down things that I normally do to make space for that. And mm. I re- I think we really miss out when we don't do that and we don't sort of have that rhythm in our weeks. Um, but it, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because cultures change so much in the UK. And I guess where you're living, Juliet, there isn't, there's no, is, yeah, is there, is there, how do weekends even work <laughs> in living? We do, we do have weekends, but sometimes they get taken over by other things. So yeah, I think amongst the work, work, work culture, this is very, I think, yeah, in many cultures, just taking the Sabbath is very countercultural. And um, I think sometimes, because I feel like the Sabbath is part of British culture, like a lot of places have, uh, Sundays off or even the weekend off but it can it can easily read it turn into how can I rest or you know do some like things that rather than how can I worship and I think we can yeah have the rest without the worship and I think that's a challenge isn't it to um use the day to be yeah, wanting to spend more time with God, be it in uh, prayer or in reading the words, you know, yeah, I think it's, I think it can be a real challenge. 
I was really personally challenged this week looking at this about um because it's a busy day for us because you know we would have um church in the morning and then we would often do hospitality in the afternoon and have people um for lunch and then for the afternoon and then there is an evening service and I just feel like oh I just don't I just can't be bothered to go back out again you know I I prioritize sort of personal rest over being back in church with God's people worshiping him and when I was studying this this week I just thought yeah that's a that's a challenge, isn't it? That it's a it's a really precious thing on a Sunday to be able to meet with God's people, and actually, I could do that twice, and yet I just feel a bit tired by the end of the day, so opt out. And I just thought, yeah, I've, my my heart has just been challenged that what a privilege it is to be able to meet around God's word with His people, and how we don't we don't see that for the privilege that it is because we of the culture we live in. Um, but yeah, making Sundays really different and really, yeah, um, spiritually focused does change the rest of the week then, doesn't it as well? It it does make you think differently. It really helps the rest of the week. So yeah, that's been the challenge of this passage for me really is to what does it look like to Sabbath well? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've been very prone to want to have personal rest and there's almost a panic of like, oh, tomorrow's Monday <laughs> and that's, and we need to rest as much as we can so that we have the energy. But actually, I feel like, yeah, when we're fed up, uh, I mean, fed, fed fully, um, <laughs> yeah, it gives us energy for the rest of the week as well. But it's a fight, isn't it, to believe that in the moment because we feel like just chilling out is what we really need. But actually, mm. we when you think of a time where you've been in church and God's really met with you through his word, that changes you, doesn't it? And that equips you for the week way better than just lounging around on the sofa. So moving on to the next section. So Nehemiah sees that the Jews have married people from other um, places, Ashod, Ammon and Moab, and that actually they've, they can't speak Hebrew and they're speaking other languages. Um, and he does some drastic things, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you think about them, Jill. I'm probably not prescriptive. <laughs> I was laughing with Jumpy about this last night because he was like, when Ezra, at the end of Ezra, there's the chapter where he confronts their marriages and Ezra, you know, um, pulls his own beard out. Nehemiah here goes and pulls their beards out and pulls the hair out of their head because he's so angry with them. And yeah, Jumpy's comment this morning was, we need both types of leaders, don't we? Like at times we need the Ezra's but at times we need the Nehemiahs too that are going to be really in our faces, confronting us really drastically with our sin. Mm. But yeah, I don't think the scattered team are saying go and find somebody's beard to pull out. <laughs> he he also, in this section, he talks about a king. Um, and King Solomon also sinned by taking wives of many nations. 
And again, it's just a reminder that Nehemiah here isn't concerned so much about um, these rules for the sake of the rules, but he's actually wanting to help the people pursue holiness. And um, God has given them commands not to do this because he knows that it, by intermarrying that the Israelites are prone to want to worship other gods. And actually in doing this, they're they're disobeying his commands, but also they then are led to sin by um, having pagan gods. And it's shocking, isn't it, how within one generation they can no, their children can no longer, they can't read the Bible anymore because they're not speaking the right languages. And I just thought that was a really stark reminder, isn't it, of how quickly just spiritual things can be lost um, to our children if we're not really diligent in teaching them and training them and delighting um, in the things of the Lord with them so that they see how important it is. Um, but yeah, but the, one of the results of these intermarriages was that the language was lost to, that enabled them to read the word. Mm. So the stakes are high, aren't they? For And I guess he sees that the people of God need to maintain that identity and that covenant faithfulness because there needs to be a Messiah that comes through this people group. And I guess at the end of this chapter, Nehemiah feels that so strongly, doesn't he? The need for a saviour because God's laws are just on repeat, um, read, delighted in, then broken, read, delighted in, then broken. And we've seen that pattern even through this one book, haven't we, in the Old Testament? But it's like, you know, yeah, like he refers to Solomon, it's the pattern of the whole history of God's people, isn't it? Um, Matt, I have a question for you, Juliet, a bit of a controversial one. Four times in this chapter, um, Nehemiah prays, remember Oh my God, remember. Sometimes it's remember me, sometimes it's remember them. Any thoughts on that and why that's his um why that's the prayer of this chapter? Yeah, it's it's controversial, isn't it? Because it's like almost like Nehemiah saying, Look at me, I'm perfect. I've kept covenant. Remember what I've done, and you keep your part of the deal. <laughs> You know, but actually, it's almost each time he's saying it, it's in a prayer to God. He's wanting, he's almost saying, like, I'm seeking your way. Because each time he says, remember me, it's after a section of he's confronted them of the sin, the people of the sin. And he's wanting them to worship him and so he's like remember this oh god for good and he's wanting the people to be transformed so it's almost like i can do my bit in action and in rebuking and in teaching but it's god that changes their hearts and and nehemiah is very aware of that and so he's very prayerful in all that he does both before then when he acts and then after yeah the one of the most helpful things i read was that when he says remember 
it actually it feels like he's saying look at me aren't I great but that that remember springs from humility as he's yeah like you said he knows he needs God's help and it's God that needs to bring the actual change um and yeah God's remembering in scripture isn't just recollection but it's a cry for intervention and so he's not like we we think of the word remember as recollect don't we whereas actually when that's used prayerfully in the old testament it's god please intervene please change this situation and so actually he's humbly saying god you need to do this because mm-hmm. i can pull their beards out but i can't change their hearts <laughs> yeah that's so clear because the law what we learn in the new testament is that the law is actually powerless to stop sin it identifies sin and it's only the grace of god that is in our lives that can actually give us power to overcome sin like um, in Romans 8 verse 3 what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh so yeah the law could not do this but Jesus did it for us yeah, but then I was also listening to Don Carson on this and he was saying, even now when Jesus has come and he's accomplished that for us, he's still, his kingship still contested, isn't it? And we're we're living in a period of time where all Jesus's enemies are not yet under his feet and that kingship is still being contested. And so there's still um, these cycles almost where the church isn't getting it right, we're not living the right way. Um, And he referred to, you know, the letters at the beginning of Revelation where there's there's times in the post-Jesus church where um, the lampstand is removed and the church is in a really small, struggling position. But I guess the hope that we look forward to is that day when Jesus returns and puts all things right. And so... Yeah, the sort of cycles that we've seen all the way through the Old Testament even continue, don't they, post-Jesus at some level because the church isn't um, always living the way it should be. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost a constant cycle of recognising our sin and then looking to Jesus and that transforming us over and over until one day we see him face to face. Yeah, and I guess that's the desire of our hearts, isn't it? That consummation when we see Jesus and are made like him. Like that's the amazing promise, isn't it? That at that point those all these wrestles with our sin and our flesh mm. will be no more because we'll be made like him. Mm. Well, thank everyone for joining us. I don't know if you have anything else to add. No, that's great. I don't know what we're going to be doing in September, but Scattered's going to be having a little break and um, we'll be back with whatever we're studying. Oh, actually, I think I've heard Jungle Drums rumour that we're going to be looking at 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus in the autumn term. So, um, yeah, some New Testament letters. Great. We look forward to you joining us then. Bye. Great summer, everyone. Bye. (laughs) 